Shape Moda designs women's trousers to suit everybody's shape to get the perfect fit. Just imagine that as soon as you wear a pair of trousers, they feel like the best piece of clothing ever. Dress for your body shape with Shape Moda and make a huge change in your life now. Go to shapemoda.com and find out which body shape you have. Shape Moda gives you the perfect fit. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. In today's episode, we're going to be hearing from a woman who has led an extraordinary, but in many ways, quite ordinary life. Marguerite Penrose was born in a Dublin mother and baby home, the daughter of an Irish mother and a Zambian father. And she came on to talk to me about being black and Irish and living with severe scoliosis and many other things. And I think you're going to find her story really interesting. I always had such a love for my mum, who's Elizabeth. And I knew, like, probably the hardest thing she's ever had to do was to give her child, her daughter up, you know, and live without me and I live without her. So I never thought she never thought about me. But always around my birthday, it was really, really, you know, a time where I would get quite low So we're going to hear more from Marguerite Penrose later on. But I want to tell you as well, Love Island is starting next week. I know some of you don't care at all. And I know some of you do and we'll be watching. And we decided uh, our little contribution to the Love Island debate would be to get someone who has never watched Love Island before and has taken a Guinness for various reasons. Anne Ingle, my mother, is going to watch it for us, the first three episodes. And she's going to come on in a couple of weeks to tell us what she thinks. So that's something to look forward to. But one story I have to mention today is the Amber Heard Johnny Depp verdict, which I think came as a surprise to some, but not to others. And if you're active at all on social media, you will know that there has been and continues to be a strong divide between people supporting Heard and those supporting Pirates of the Caribbean actor Depp. Uh, Twitter and such places are not, as we know, very good at nuance. So there has been a lot thrown about on there in recent weeks. And of course, as the verdict came through yesterday. So to keep you up to speed, if you haven't been paying attention to that particular case, Johnny Depp um, was suing his former wife, actor Amber Heard, for defamation after a piece she wrote in the Washington Post about surviving sexual violence. And she didn't name Depp in that piece, but the case centred on that article. And Heard, meanwhile, was countersuing Depp also for defamation. And I don't know if you watched any of the case, I did uh, a little bit of it anyway, quite a lot of it. And I found it um, just very sad and upsetting. And at times it actually felt wrong to be watching this uh, clearly very toxic and destructive relationship being laid bare by those involved. There were lots of moments that stood out for me, but one very clear moment came when Depp confirmed that he had sent a really disgusting text message about her talking about burning her and then having sex with the corpse afterwards, which I think... Although a lot of people talk about how kind and sweet he is, and I think, you know, there's a lot of genuine people who are friends with him and think he's a great person. I think that text message can show the mark of a person and it it sort of did to me anyway. Then, of course, there has been a lot of criticism of her too, uh, people not believing her. And I think a lot of sexism in the way that she has been uh, spoken about. And she did not coming out of this looking very well either, but... This wasn't a contest about who was a nice person or the nicest person. That wasn't an issue here. It was an intense libel trial involving bitterly contested allegations of sexual violence and domestic abuse. Anyway, the jury in the case yesterday found Johnny Depp and Amber Heard defamed each other, but they sided far more strongly with Depp, who actually had lost a libel case in London in 2020 against The Sun for calling him a wife beater. And yesterday... Depp was celebrating the split verdict as a victory and he said the jury gave me my life back. Uh, The jury was composed of five men and two women, which, I don't know, make of that what you will. 
And after deliberating over three days, they found that Heard had in fact defamed her ex-husband in the op-ed piece and they awarded him $10 million in compensatory damages and $5 million in punitive damages. And at the same time, the jury found that the 58-year-old actor had made defamatory claims against his 36-year-old former wife, Amber Heard, and also awarded her compensatory damages, but at a much lower uh, amount, $2 million. Uh, Heard was in court to hear the verdict, but Depp wasn't. He's been playing gigs in England and she later declared herself heartbroken by the outcome. Just to say that Washington Post article she was sued over was titled, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That has to change. And I suppose on that note, you'll be seeing a lot of messages shared about how victims of domestic abuse and sexual violence are feeling in the wake of this verdict. There are a lot of fears that it may have a silencing effect, a lot of pleas to support domestic violence charities. And I think one of the most accurate things I read about it all this morning and last night was by a legal analyst who finished his piece by saying that there were no winners in this case except perhaps the legal teams of both people involved who stand to earn a lot of money from this whole sordid and toxic process. And no doubt there'll be appeals and it's probably not over. But for today, um, our thoughts on the women's podcast are with all victims of domestic violence and sexual violence. Now, my guest today was born in a mother and baby home in Dublin in 1974. Her mother was Irish, her father was Zambian, and she had severe scoliosis, which meant her future would be full of difficult medical procedures. And she was very lucky at age three to be fostered by a loving Dublin family and had quite a wonderful childhood with them and she's written a fantastic book about her life experience growing up in Dublin as a black woman and asking herself some big questions. Questions such as who am I? How do I live in a world made for people with bodies different to mine? Why does anybody care about my skin colour? It's not a misery memoir though I have to say because it's full of her open and positive spirit and you have to love the title of her book. It's called Yeah But Where Are You Really From? The book, which Roddy Doyle has called engrossing, urgent and entertaining, was inspired by an Instagram post on the Black and Irish page. And I began by asking Marguerite about that moment. Yeah, basically, I was on Instagram, as we all are most days, and I came across the Black and Irish Instagram page. And I was like, oh, what's this? Hadn't seen it before. And there was a couple of stories, maybe five or six stories at this stage. So I was reading them. And again, it was about being Black and Irish. So living over in Ireland, whether you were born here or whether you moved from another country to Ireland. And I suppose the experiences of uh, of that um, situation. So I had a little read and, uh, you know, a lot of the stories were heartbreaking. So it's like, OK, everybody was quite young. So again, I'm 48 now, so 47, 46 at the time. So I said, you know what, maybe they'd want to hear from somebody like myself, that bit older, my experiences. It's funny how it happened because... I never really thought about anything. It was like a whim. I did all this on. Um, so I sent them in a message. I suppose I was just delighted to see people being proactive. Um, it was obviously on the wake of um, Black Lives Matter movement, which, you know, in America had blown up. Um, so um, it was all, everything was very raw at that stage. So how does that, you know what I said, I'll send in a little message and see how we get on. So I wrote out a brief synopsis of, you know, my life since I was born in 74 Sent it on, honest to God, didn't think anything of it. And a couple of hours or the next day later, I got a lovely message back saying they were delighted to receive my piece and would I mind if they used it? So I said, no, absolutely go ahead. Again, didn't really think anything true about it. And voila, a couple of days I'm in work. I just only started a new job and my phone was going absolutely bananas. Like, What's going on with that? And then it came up, you know, they tagged me in the post and it was then the realisation of seeing my own words, you know, in black and white on social media with so many messages. I was like, oh God, what have I done? Um, so that was really the catalyst, shall we say. And then after that, like my dad had sent the piece into the Ryan Turbidy show and uh, the producer phoned and asked me to come on the show. Now, I thought it was a joke because my dad's a big messer and he's <laughs> always winding us up. So my mum was in the background when he phoned and she's like, no, Max, this isn't a joke. You're, this is really serious. Like, He's not lying to you this time, you know. So we had a good laugh and I was like, oh, do you know what? I'll give them a ring and see. So spoke to the producer and ended up on Ryan Turberty then. And that was it. Then I couldn't go backwards at this stage. I'd found my voice finally, terrified and all as it was. But that was really the catalyst. So, yeah, the Black and Irish page really kind of 
started a, a huge movement with myself. Like it was always there growing up, obviously because I'm black and because I'm Irish. Um, you know, growing up in 1974 onwards, there was nobody like me around except for, as I'm saying in my interviews, Phil Linnett on the telly, you know. So I wasn't quite Phil Linnett's status, you know. I was a little little girl growing up in a, a really loving uh, family. And um, yeah, so that's how it started. And then it just escalated from there. Well, let's go back to the beginning then um, before we get on to you actually writing the book. The beginning of your story, you said you were born in 1974 in St. Patrick's Mother and Baby Home. And obviously those um, institutions have been in the news a lot lately. And you were there until you were three. So tell us um, about your situation then. Uh, I, I, I presume you don't have that many memories from there. No, I don't. As again, very young, I've one kind of vivid memory of being in my crib and there was a guy beside me, little boy, Philip, who we were kind of in the same room with and another little girl. Don't really remember her as much, but definitely Philip. He seemed to have been um, my buddy. Um, and as it happens, when I did get fostered by my mum and dad, Nolene and Michael, um, Philip and his family lived quite near to us. So I remember there being like that connection continuing. Sadly, he he died by suicide when we were quite young. I think he was in his, his late teens. Um, so, but yeah, I kind of remember that. I'm so sad that I don't remember the day that I actually got to meet my mum and dad, Nolene and Michael, because that was obviously such a major thing. But, um, you know, they've given me the memories of that, which is amazing. And um, I haven't looked back since. I couldn't have asked for a better family. Um, I came to them. I had quite a lot of complications. I had congenital scoliosis. So I was a sick child, shall we say. Um, I was missing uh, three ribs on my left-hand side. So there were surgeries involved. There was a lot. I wasn't, a, they weren't just adopting a child. They were adopting a child with disability, a black child or a mixed race um, child. So they just took it on the chin. As mum and dad say, you know, when we talk about it and, you know, people are asking them obviously a lot of questions at the moment. They were like, we, there was no big thought about it. It was just like, okay, let's do it. Like there was no, let's talk about it for months or what do you think? So it just happened very naturally, which I suppose is amazing for me. You know, so it was great that way. So from that point of view, a great childhood with really brilliant parents. I mean, and yeah. it could have been very different as well. So I, I presume you, you feel like that. But tell me about uh, if you when you got to a point where you were looking to find out about your own birth parents or your own story. And how, how did that evolve? Yeah, again, it's something that went on for years. Mum and dad always wanted me to find my um, other family and... Um, I, you know, I would brush it off. I would say, oh, yeah, no, no, I don't. I'm fine. I'm fine. But as any adopted person, I'm sure a foster person will tell you, this is something we live with every day of our lives. Um, you learn to kind of not brush it to the side, but maybe bury it a little bit because it is quite painful. Um, you know, I was just thinking earlier on, I was like, you know, how damaged we all are from our experience of, you know, entering the world in such, you know, traumatic circumstances. You know, from writing the book, it's really made me think, what I did go through, you know, um, it, it, it is a colossal thing, but I suppose years and years, it kind of hit me every now and then around my birthday. I just noticed my mood would change the week of my birthday. Um, I always had such a love for my mum, um, who's Elizabeth. Um, but, and I knew like probably the hardest thing she's ever had to do was to give her child, her daughter up, you know, and live without me and I live without her. So I never thought she never thought about me, but always around my birthday, it was really, really you know, a time where I would get quite low in myself, you know. And for years, I didn't really understand why, because I was young. But when I, as I got older, I knew the reason. So there was always a curiosity. It's just, as we've heard in the news now, how hard is tracing? I mean, you literally have to go to the depths of the earth to try and get this information. A lot of the information that we have from being young, from our, you know, adopted birth certificates is incorrect. You know, um, names are, are changed locations are changed. People were told they were born in Cork. They weren't, they were born in Dublin, vice versa. Luckily for me, I actually had correct information. So I had my mum's um, name and I had the year she was born and the area kind of where she grew up. Um, so then I had a very bad um, health scare in 2015 and um, I had type 2 respiratory failure. So I nearly didn't make it. So that was another spur for me, another kick to say, you're getting older, your mum's getting older, is it time to make the leap? Um, and it's funny, everything aligns so well because literally I started with Toolslip three years ago, just over three years ago on this journey. Then, as we know, COVID 
um, the book, everything was kind of two years uh, ago, two and a half years ago. So it was actually such an alignment when I think of the path that I've been on because everything just worked out. Um, sadly, I found out um, and when I got my caseworker, Margaret, um, about six weeks into Zooming because it was locked down in COVID, I couldn't actually meet her face to face. She did tell me that sadly my birth mum, Elizabeth, had passed away. I think it was 2014. So I knew at that stage I'm never going to meet my mum. Um, I've known from a young age that I had siblings. But again, I didn't know whether they were male or female, two, three, four, five, how many there were. So at that stage, she was like, well, what's the next step? What do you want to do? So I said, well, obviously, I know I have siblings, so I'd like to kind of pursue that. And maybe, you know, obviously my father is from Zambia. So that was a thing that I wanted to pursue as well. But we kind of said at the beginning, we'd start from the Irish side um, to try and work that out. Like how difficult it is over here to try and get information. I was thinking Zambia. Don't know how far we're going to get with that. I don't, I didn't even have my father's name. Um, so it did prove a bit of a journey. But then last, I submitted the book to Penguin. The completed book, I think it was the 7th of November last year. And I think it was the 18th of November when I got to hear about my family. So it, it was actually so crazy when I think about it. Because the book was written, written signed, sealed, delivered to Penguin. And then all of a sudden, a week and a half later, oh, by the way, we're ready to send a letter to a family member. Like, I actually couldn't believe it. I was absolutely dumbfounded. And again, at that stage, I thought the letter would go out. It would take months. Would anybody reply? But no, my um, eldest brother, James, um, he actually phoned straight away. So from that moment, I was in work. I could see Margaret's name flashing up my mobile. I was like, oh, this must mean news. I think the letter went out on Tuesday and this was the Friday. So she phoned me and she said, I have great news for you. She said, I just spoke to your brother. So I knew at that stage I had one brother. So I was like, oh my goodness, my knees were shaking. You know, I'm in work trying to remain calm. And um, yeah, <laughs> so she just divulged, yeah, that I had, I confirmed that I had got siblings and that they were so eager to meet me. And yeah, it was another wow moment completely. Like, so yeah. And very what was on. it like meeting them? Oh, do you know what? It was the best day of my life um, I my family my sister Kira wanted to come with me you know but I thought it was a journey I had to do by myself Um, it's a very emotional time Um, I was sick to my stomach with nerves we'd exchanged a couple of letters through Tulsa so and from the first letter I knew that everything was going to be all right it was it was really strange you know the connection was there straight away it was funny like you know um, Jane's daughter is called Sarah my second name is Sarah one of his other daughters, third name is Valerie. I have Valerie in my, na- in my name. So there was so much connection. So we exchanged a good few letters and we were laughing and joking. It was it was actually gas. You know, you'd think it would be very formal. But for us, personality wise, we're, we're the same. So that morning, um, I think I was meeting them at what time is it? I think it was three o'clock or two o'clock. And uh, so I went up the offices near where I live. So I went up. I was there first. So trying to remain calm. I didn't want to be emotional. You know, if you lot watch long lost family, I mean, I'm into that three seconds and the tears, everything are flowing. But for that day, just this thing came over me. This, I just said, I want to remember every word they say, what they look like. You know, I, I'd had photographs. We'd exchange photos. But, you know, in the flesh, again, it was, it was locked down again. So we were masked. We had to sit opposite ends of a table it was really it was like being in a board meeting but here I am meeting my own flesh and blood you know for the first time and it was absolutely magical we just hit it off straight away again all chat we talked about mum and you know things but it was more about each other you know we kind of said what's happened has happened it's nobody's fault my mum did the best thing for for me she nobody knew what St. Patrick's was like or all these industrial schools institutions um, mother and baby homes nobody had an idea at that time so and nobody is to blame not the mothers not the children you know um, in our sense there's other people yeah that have to take blame but that's a whole other story as we know but yeah it was what, the most what amazing day. kind of life had your brothers had then what had been their situation yeah they had a great life like I love it like obviously lived with my mum and their dads then as well and um, so yeah they're a very loving family pretty much like our own family you know it was funny, like when we met, we were saying, God, thank God we're all down to earth. And, 
the same type of people because it's a Pandora's box as I, I describe it. Nobody knows what who you're going to meet. You know, I've heard loads of stories of, oh God, we met once and we haven't seen each other again. So this is all playing in my mind over the years. It's a risk you have to take, but I wanted answers. So I had to be prepared for what I got, you know. So as it happens, um, we have gelled. I think it's what, just over six months now. I see them all the time. We talk every day. It's my family are like, it's like they've always been in our life, yeah. you know. And I said, but they have because connection, it really proves, you know, about connection. You know, I'm always talking about it anyway. I'm really big into meditation and Reiki. So I always talk about connection, but this is actual proof, you know. Um, and even they were blown away by it. Like their wives, their children, everybody, you know, has just gelled, which is mm. so good. It's like the icing on the cake, really, you know. Yeah. And yeah. so had they, did you ask them, I'm presuming you had so many questions yeah. for them about your mother. So what was yeah. that like? And what did you find out from her? From yeah. Them? Oh, I had a million questions. We've kind of covered a little bit over when we were doing our letters together. And then again, it's such a big situation. You don't want to be bombarding too much. They don't want to bombard me at the beginning. I didn't want to bombard them. But yeah, there were snippets of, you know, like it was funny. We were, it was one of the days we'd met and I was drinking a cup of tea and I was doing something with my fingers on the mug. And I could see uh, one of my sister-in-laws looking at me and she was like, your mum did that all the time. Like they said, there's so many qualities in me that they see. And that's really good for them because they feel like they have a piece of her still, you know, that way. So um, then it was the likeness, likeliness that blew me away. Like my two brothers, I look really like them. I thought I would be more the African side. Um, so I was completely blown away by that. Like, especially my brother, Collie, like we're like everyone was saying at the book launch last week. Oh, my God, you like twins. Like we're we're just so alike. And James as well. with the same nose, cheeks. You know, in pictures when we smile, it's it's actually completely bizarre. But um, yeah, so we, we did. We talk a lot about everything. Obviously, you know, mum's not here to tell us anything. Her side of the story. And we're, we're, I'm never going to get that. So I'm OK with that. That's fine. We can't take back the past at all. You know, what's happened has happened. Um, so I'm still a lot of family members to meet. So and um, my mum's sister, I haven't met her yet and things like that. So I'm hoping, you know, slowly through the line, um, mum was very private, which is so funny. I'm the same. So she didn't want to discuss it, you know, so that's, so that's did totally you, understandable. Did she never discuss it with anybody? Did she talk about you? Did she tell people the story? She told her husband, so um, uh, she told her husband and she did tell, I think, one or two friends. Obviously, her siblings knew, um, but she never discussed it with the boys, unfortunately. So um, when they were told... And their dad told them and said, listen, your mum's very private. It's, you know, a very hurtful thing that happened to her and very painful. So they respected her wish and and didn't speak about it to her. Now, maybe looking back, we're kind of probably all saying, oh, God, if only she could have been comfortable enough to talk about it. You know, maybe her life would have been, you know, that less painful. I mean, what she had to carry around, even though she was in her, her own family now, she's, you know, kids, a husband, extended family. There's always something missing. I mean, there was always something missing from my life. I mean, as I say, my new family now are the gifts I never thought I actually would need so much. You know, I couldn't be without them now. So it's it's very precious. So I'm sad for her that she couldn't freely talk about it, you know, to to everybody. But I understand. Look at all the stories we're hearing in the news, like the amount of messages I've gotten from people that say, oh, my God, from that. And my mum has come, come around and said, well, do you know what? This actually happened to me or my niece or my auntie. So I really believe it's in every family in Ireland. Deep down, you know, it mightn't be in your immediate family, but it's there somewhere. This podcast is brought to you by shapemoda.com. Log on today to find your perfect fit. Going back to when you were on Ryan Tuberty, it was very interesting that from that interview, I suppose the book happened, but also a, a nurse got in touch with with you um, on the back of that. Tell us about Cathy and what that brought to your life. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it was, you know, that day I thought my heart was going to come out of my mouth with the anxiety and the stress of going on live radio. It was the first time I'd publicly spoken, you know, and then such a big medium to speak on, you know. Um, so... I said, but you know what, I've, I've agreed to do it. I have to keep going. 
So I had the interview with Ryan and I came back upstairs. We'd been chatting to everybody downstairs, came back upstairs and the receptionist came over and said, oh, I have a message for you. So I was like, okay. And she said, it's a, it's a lady. She wait till I get her details. So she ran over, grabbed the details. Now at this stage, I didn't know who this lady was. I didn't know about my mum at this stage, you know, I passed away. So I knew by my own mum's face, Nolene, she was thinking, oh my God, is this your mother? No, and she phoned in, you know. So I was like, now mum, calm down. It's not going to be her. Because um, so many people had said to me before, what would you do if somebody phoned in? But I kind of knew that really wasn't going to happen. That's a bit too Hollywood. Um, so she came over and she said, her name is Cathy. Uh, she worked in St. Patrick's and she used to look after you. So I was completely blown away. My poor dad nearly dropped down. You know, we were like, oh my goodness. So she left her mobile number and she said, you know, I'd love if Marguerite could get in touch. So I was given the number. I remember walking to the car and I was still so shocked about the, you know, the radio, um, you know, being live on radio and talking to My phone was going bananas again. So dad was like, ring her, ring her. I said, oh, dad, no, I can't. I, I, I haven't got the, the headspace at the moment. I wouldn't be able to have a, a normal conversation. I remember, you know, all of this, uh, all of these things are huge things to happen in your life every day. So I always want to remember every word, you know, that way, because people have been laughing at me and saying, how did you remember all that information for the book? Like my sister was like, thanks for the memories. I didn't remember a quarter or what you remembered. So I waited till that evening and I texted her first and I said, thanks so much for, you know, texting in and leaving your details. We'll be delighted to talk to you. So we phoned each other then about 20 minutes later and we're on the phone for, oh, I don't know, about an hour. And again, it was so magical. Like we literally talked like we were best friends. It was, you know, it was that connection was there with her. And you know what? It was so lovely to hear that somebody actually cared for me there because the stories that you hear aren't nice, you know. So she was only 18, 19 at the time. So she was very young. She used to bring me home. She used to bring me outside. She used to bring me on buses. So she gave me a little bit of normality, you know, within the walls of St. Patrick's, I suppose. But she was there, I think, just over a year. And then she actually left and went to the UK to become a nurse, you know, so she did her training over there. And she told you about this reject room that you were placed in. Tell me about that. Well, now, it wasn't Cathy that told me that. That is something that kind of came out through the commission. Um, Cathy, obviously, when she was young, when she was there, she didn't see anything untoward. Um so I'm sure if she had, you know, it would have been the case that she wouldn't have did her best to, you know, not leave children there in that situation. Yeah, you know, it's come out through the commission, all these horrible stories. I'm sure you've heard them, Roisin. Um, but yeah, and do you know what? It makes sense because so many mixed, mixed race black children, children with disabilities, were longer, took longer to get adopted. So it doesn't take a genius to work out why. Um, yeah, so we're in a reject room um, and it's it's... You know, I know Philip had issues and I know the other girl that was in the room with me had issues. So it does add up. Um, of course, I was it, I had a disability. I was black, you know, and then so for sure I was in that room. Um, it was that actually broke my heart the most to hear that um, that I was put segregated. You know, all of us were segregated. You know, we've already gone through enough trauma coming into the world, being without our mums. You know, they say how important it is for a mother and child to bond, you know, for the first, you know, weeks, months of their lives. And here I am and my other crib mates, as we're called, um, in a room. Um, now, I'm not saying we weren't loved by staff. We were because Cathy is 100% proof of that. Um, everybody wasn't bad that worked in these places. But yet there was a lot of badness that went on, you know. Mm-hmm. And going through your life then, because, I mean, I, I'm conscious of the fact that we've heard a lot of stories um, about, you know, white Irish in these places, right? But I think people with disabilities and people of mixed race were on a, on a lower tier because we've spoken to um, other p- women on this podcast as well about the difference in how they, they were treated. You know, it was another layer down of, of mistreatment. Even though the Mother and Babies Home Commission like sort of said there was no evidence that people of colour were treated any differently, which seems outrageously, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, personally speaking, you know, I can only speak for myself about the commission. Honest to God, you know, nobody wants to go in there and give their evidence and say about their lives and the trauma that they've had because, you know, they were given up for adoption or whatever happened to them. Um, so to go in there to actually tell people what happened, how you feel, how your life has been since. I have had an amazing life since I've been fostered. A lot of people haven't. 
you know, and that is another heartbreak, you know. I nearly feel guilty because I've had such an amazing family, friends. And when I hear the stories of others, I was like, that could have been me as well. I could have been there and moved to an industrial school. So I think for the commission to say there's no evidence is a complete lie. Um, There's clear evidence because we're here to say, there's people telling these stories. You've heard them, Roshan, you've spoken to these people yourself. So they're literally calling us liars. So instead of if we have to move on, if we want to make things better, we have to be able to admit what happened. Nobody has been brought to justice for any of this. Nobody has been, you know, nobody has come to me and said, you know what, Marguerite, as this, from the state, I'm so sorry what happened to you. This should never have happened. This should never have happened to your mother. You know, that's all we want is an apology. We want to be acknowledged. We want to be able to have our, inf- like I'm a human being and I can't have my own information you know when the commission came out and the report was ready um i had to request a copy of that it wasn't automatically sent to me i had to physically request it um there was no follow-up from it you know there's all these you know talk in government about this bill and that bill and whatever most of us don't agree with this you know bill that they're trying to pass through it's not fair it's not fair on everybody it's not equal um Nobody is coming to us directly. You get an email that's sent to mass people. This We are human beings. Everybody should be brought in individually and spoken to, you know, and had their opportunity to say, you know, so the likes of Roderick O'Gorman, you know, yes, he looks like he's doing much. I know there's constraints, but if you can change an alcohol bill overnight, well, seriously, what does that say about Ireland? We are human beings and here we are fighting. People have died with no information. People are continuing to die with no information. You know, so I'm still on the road of trying to get information about um, my Zambian side of my family. I don't know how long I'm going to be at that, but I'm definitely not going to give up. It makes you want to give up. When the commission report came out, I felt sick to my stomach. I was like, why did I bother doing that? You know, but again, I sometimes say to my mum, I think that's what they want. I think they want us all to give up. Like it's it's like a conspiracy nearly, you know, but that's the way they make you feel because... You go, you give your evidence and you hope that something's going to come out of this. This is costing millions of pounds, you know, and yet there's no answers. There's no end game to this. This is still going to be going on in 20 years time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible. The same things I hear from all people that I speak to about this. And it's just it's so frustrating for everybody and, and just so yeah. de- depressing. I, I mean, I know you had a, a great life with your family and you, you're very lucky. And it's almost like a survivor guilt you're, you're saying they're experiencing because, you know, so many people didn't. Nolene and Michael were amazing, but it didn't mean you escaped completely racism or um, ableism and all of those things. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because you do write about it very well in the book, um, particularly one instance um, on the bus going to college in Ballyfermot. Tell us about that story. Yeah, you know, again, you're you're black, you're living in Ireland. Uh, there's not many black people at that stage. So I was about, what was I, in my 20s going to college. I was 19 up to school, leaving school. Um, so you're, the old, you're always the odd person out, unfortunately, you know, growing up in the way I grew up, you know. So I grew up loving my skin, loving the colour of myself. Never wanted to be any other colour, thank God. You know, whereas on the Black and Irish page, you read so many of the stories from the younger kids and all they want to be is white so they can blend in with everybody else. You know, so it's about identity. Thankfully, I was proud of my identity. Thanks again to my parents because they used to, you know, tell me how gorgeous I was. Everyone's only looking at you because your skin is beautiful. So it was always a positive reinforcement. Then you get on a bus and people don't want to sit beside you. People spit at you, which is what happened in that particular incident. Nobody came over to me and said, are you okay? Nobody went up to the bus driver and said, well, somebody has actually been abused on the bus, racially, has been spat at. Um, I was left alone, completely humiliated, like, you know, absolutely. I really, you know, that kind of situation where you're listening, where you're saying, I just want the ground to open up and swallow me. Well, that was me. I never felt so, you know, ashamed as well, because I was thinking, here I am on a bus. There's now the bus was absolutely packed, you know, so it wasn't like there was nobody there. There were people there. People were embarrassed. So out of embarrassment, they did nothing rather than saying like I wasn't asking anybody to go up to that person and say, listen, you can't do that because people have fear. And this is the whole thing as well. But all I wanted was somebody to even sit beside me and say, are you okay?" Or, you know, go up to the driver and say, there's been an incident. You need to call somebody you need, you know, 
that, that's, a, that's a case for the police at that stage, you know, if this is happening to people. So they need to be able to, people need to be able to take action. Like I'm very much a firm believer if I'm in the company of somebody and something untoward happens to them, I will speak up, you know. And maybe that's because of the situation I've grown up in, you know. I know what it feels like to be on the outside all the time. You know, now when I look at kids in school, like say my nephew, he's 12, he's in school, like it's completely multicultural. It's absolutely amazing. He loves it, you know. He's be telling everybody now about my book. You know, he's carrying it around proud as punch. You know, this is my auntie, you know. Yes, she's black. And he's even saying, you know, you can say the word black because people can't even say that. And, you know, he'd come home and he'd be telling my sister, wait till I tell you, somebody said something racist. So I went up to my teacher and I said, and I said to them, you know, you can't say that. <laughs> and he'll explain to them because I said to him, if that happens, you explain why it's wrong. Not just saying you can't say it because... There are probably genuine ignorance people out there that really don't know that have grown up. We all presume that everybody grows up in a family that's anti-racist. That is not the case. You know, we're very yeah. naive in Ireland to think that racism doesn't exist. And that's part of the book, you know, a call to action. When people read that, they will see when they read the incidents that's happened. They're very, very few incidents. You know, there's probably loads more if I searched my mind even more. But I think those ones were particularly nasty. And people need to know about it. Like the amount of messages that people sent me to say, I'm absolutely ashamed and disgusted to think that this would happen to somebody and nobody did anything. So we need to remember those words. We need to remember what I've written and say, I'm never going to be in the company of, of somebody and not do something about it, you know. Yeah. And listen, the book is called Yeah, But Where Are You Really From? Yes. Which I love because it's one of those questions. I'm sure at some point I've asked myself, Oh, hands up you know maybe not in that most direct <laughs> exactly, way but you know but that's pressed fine. on yeah just being very honest because yeah. it's kind of like yeah. oh you know there's a, there's a curiosity and there's but there's there's also an ignorance there because you need to accept where people are from if they tell you where they're from so tell me yeah. why you wanted that to be the title and how that came about you know what it was funny it's probably one of the first things that came to my head because obviously i've been asked it so much and just as ag wrote it's okay to ask that question it's the next question. There shouldn't be a second question is, our, is the point, really. Um, so I would say to people, you know, so I think it's like, say somebody asked me, I'd say Dublin, okay? Some people don't flinch, like, okay, Grant, and the conversation goes on, or I'm from Port yeah. Marnock, or I'm from Malahide, or, you know, Cork. And we get, you know, it's all about people are trying to connect with each other. So this is why, you know, in Ireland, we always know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody. So this is part of that. But the main reason for the book title is because the other meaning behind that is you know I'd say Dublin and they're looking at you and you can see the fear in their eyes how do I ask this next question yeah but like oh oh okay and then it's like yeah but where are you really from so I'll say Dublin you know because I tend to get quite stubborn about it sometimes depending on who's asking me the question and other times it doesn't bother me but it is a question that's asked like and everybody is talking about the title of the book because it resonates with so many people but then other people have said to me I've never witnessed that. I've never, you know, I didn't realize this was a thing, you know, and I was like, no, it is. It's the same as, but I don't see your color, you know, and, and even my friends have said, oh my God, I honestly, that's what I would have thought. But I was like saying to them, that's okay. But that's like me saying, I don't see your color. So I, can you see where, you know, the issue is with that? And I'm not saying I'm going to wipe everyone off the face of the earth. Absolutely not. You know, cancel culture is something that's very, very dangerous. You know, it's huge, you know, all around the world, but definitely in Ireland as well. You know, so we can't say, you know, like with celebrities, they drag up these quotes that they did when they were 21 or 17, splashed all over and the career is gone. You know, that's it. You're cancelled. We have to stop that. We have to be able to talk about it like ourselves today, having the conversation. You know, people need to feel that they can ask questions. It's the manner that you ask the question. Don't you think people who say I don't see your colour, like <laughs> it's so um self-satisfied and self-congratulatory. It's like now because I don't see you as anything different and I treat you the same, then there's what is the issue? There's no problem for you. They're not accepting and recognising that you're moving through the world at a disadvantage because there are so many people who do and you can't and you don't want to change your colour. Your colour is part of you. But I just find it a really kind of, um, I think people genuinely don't realise how bad it is to say that, though. 
It's funny. They don't, you know what? And they don't. And it's it's terrible because I nearly feel sorry for, you know, people that come up to me and they're, they're they, and it's so great that they'd say to me, I've, I've said that to you. I know I've said that to you. And I was like, oh no, I know you've said it to me, but that's okay. So it's explaining, you know, behind the reasoning behind it. It's like, you know, this is part of me. I don't want to change my color, but even if I could, you know, it's, it's near to impossible to do anyway. So it's like, you know, we'll talk about redheads in Ireland, you know, they get the same thing, you know, it's like, oh, nobody wants to be a redhead, you know? And I'm like, why would you say that to somebody? You know, so this is part of me. I see your color, you know, and you know, that's, it's gorgeous. You know, it's, that's who you are. This, my color makes up a part of me, the person that I am today. So you're basically telling me that, you know, as you said, Rojin, you explained it so well. I think the way you've said it is amazing. So I've chosen to think, you know, well, I'm all right with it. So it's okay that I don't see it, you know, but like that's, I, it's so hard to get your head around how yeah. people can, can think that way. Yes, I'm one of, you know, I think they mean it's more like you're one of us as in you're a person, you're a human being, you're my friend, you're my family, you know, you're my colleague. But then if you're saying that to me, it means you're not seeing me as the full person that I am, you know, and my color is the probably one of the biggest identities of me, you know, your color, your personality, you know, they're the two biggest things, your heart, you know, the type of person that you are. So I think in Ireland, we're forgetting as well when we talk about, you know, immigration, when we talk about refugees, when we talk about people that come from another country into our country, there's such an issue. But how many Irish people are around the world? They don't see that as the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. Most families have probably at least three members throughout the family that lives abroad. You know, it's like the undocumented in America, you know, that way. But they don't see that as the same as somebody coming to live here. Like, does it really matter where your next door neighbor is from? No. Are they a nice person? Yes. Okay. That's all you need to know. You know, so we're so intent on knowing everything about everybody. You know, the personal questions, you know, about my weight, you know, that's all to do with my scoliosis, you know, and my body and my disability. So do I want somebody coming up to me to say, God, you're so skinny. Do you not eat? Like, this is the type of thing you get, you know? So I'm not going to walk up to somebody and discuss their weight with them. So why do people feel it necessary to discuss my weight, you know, or your race or, you know, it's, sorry, would you mind if I asked you? I'm really curious, you know, love the color of your skin. That's the way to approach the question. Would you mind if I asked you? Uh, well, I think you talk so much sense and I think it's really useful for people because I do think um, to be compassionate and kind, a lot of people don't realise when they're doing these things. Yeah, and so absolutely. it's And yeah. you shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to be going around having to explain this. <laughs> it's not like you have a life to lead. You shouldn't have to be educating people. But it I is know. very, you know, yeah. it's great of you that you don't mind doing it no. and that you've written yeah, the book. I, but absolutely. tell me about writing as well, because that, you know, had you written before, it's beautifully written. Oh, How did you. that all happen for you? Did it, did it sort of spill out of you, the story? Um, you know, it's all in your head. Yeah, there was a lot of things I had to dig deep. You know, the way you'd remember something, but you can't fully remember the story. Obviously, you know, I'm sure a lot of people know I didn't tell anybody I was writing this book. Not my parents, not my sister, nobody. So I, any information I needed, I had to kind of slyly get so I'd be talking to my mum and I'd be like, do you remember that time when, you know, and then she'd tell me and I'd be running inside, you know, making notes. And um, now I'm not going to lie. I had a lot of help writing the book. Um, I had a mentor. I have a full time job. Um, so, yes, it was tough going. But I now that I look back, I probably enjoyed the writing so much because, you know, the way you're writing something, then you read and you're like, OK, that's what I wanted to say. But I'll just change it a little bit. So as the story was unfolding, it was brilliant. I wrote a lot of poetry when I was younger. Don't know whether it's any good, but I always, English was my favorite subject. Um, you know, if we were asked to write a story in school, people would struggle to write a page, whereas Mags would hand up 10 pages and the teacher would be like, oh, I love when I get your essays. I'd be writing my sisters on the slide for her because she hated English, you know. So I'd be saying to her, oh, do you want me to write that for you? I'd be loving life. And of course, my mum was like, Kira didn't write that. She said, that's you all over. So I always had a huge interest. Obviously, you know, in Ireland, we grow up with, you know, like Marion Keys, Maeve Binchy, all the greats, you know, and I'm thinking, God, these women are amazing, you know. So, but did I ever think it was going to be me? No, you know, this was a pipe dream. Was it even a pipe dream? It was just a thing in my head, but it really escalated from the black and Irish, from Tuberty. It was kind of like 
I describe it as like coming out of the closet. I've come out, I've spoken. I can't go backwards. Too many people are asking me too many questions. What am I supposed to do? Move country at this stage to avoid them. So I just said, you know what? This is probably the time. It was an October evening. I'll never forget. It was lashing rain, pitch black. And it came on a whim. And I just said, I'm going to contact somebody and see, am I crazy? You know, you think if you're not a writer, you're not an author. Like these people are going to say this one. Who does she think she is? You know, but no, the response I got was absolutely. Let's do it. And I was like, okay, wasn't really ready for that. And again, I was doing it for myself. Wasn't meant to be published. Didn't even think about that. So when the story was developing and I was telling my story and, you know, we were hashing it all out and, you know, I was saying, well, what do you think about this? I can't say that, which is great to get a mentor because I filter myself too much. I'm sure you do as well. Am I going to offend somebody? And Deirdre was like, so what if you offend them? This is your story. You are entitled to say what you want to say. So and she was great because she'd say, well, let's just leave it in and think about it for two days. And then I'd go back and go, oh, yeah, that's grand. I'm fine to say that. Whereas if that had been me alone, that wouldn't go into the book. And I really wanted to be, you know, when she said to me, Marguerite, this needs to be published. I Thankfully, I listened to her. So she got me to here today. And I was like, do you think so? She was like, and I kind of went with it, you know, the way Irish people do. And we're like, oh, yeah, I'll go right. I'll go with it. I'll just please her now and go with this. Not really thinking anybody was going to publish me, you know, at all. And then when I got the call from Penguin, Patricia emailed me one night and said, oh, you know, are you still, you know, ready to be published? And I just got your email and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, oh, yeah. You know, didn't think anything of it. Spoke to Deirdre and she's like, no, no, sorry, Penguin, I emailed you back. And I was like, yeah, and she's like, this is a good sign. And I was like, do you think? Still didn't believe it. And then I had my lovely Zoom with Michael and Patricia. Um, it was an hour long. It was like chatting to yourself, yeah, from Penguin. Um, the top dogs. And they're wonderful. They made me feel so at ease. I'm kind of talking to them. I was like, I think they're interested. You know, and Deirdre was like, no, no, they're not going to just talk to you for an hour if they're not. So they said, and so good, so kind, so, you know, sympathetic, lots of empathy. You know, uh, they heard my Tuberty interview as well. So Patricia was like, I knew I recognised your name. Um, so, and I think that my positivity is what they, they said and how I'm just down to it. I'm just an ordinary person, you know. I don't want to be a celebrity, you know, that's not it. My mission in life is just to have a great life and get on with everybody and to try and make the place a little bit better for us all, as we all do, you know. So do I, did I really want to spill my guts to the world? No. Am I glad I did it? A hundred percent. I found my voice and it's so freeing for me. I can talk about this. Like my parents, when I told them about the book and Kira, so I think I told them maybe about five weeks before the announcement um, in December, they were blown away. They were like, you've written a book? You're publishing a book? Kira was like, you of all people, not the writing. They were, they knew that it was it within me, but that fact that I was going to bear all, you know, and even when they read it, they said, you gave a hundred percent of yourself. You know, Kira was like, you didn't leave any stone unturned. And I said, but I had to be so honest, you know. Yeah. And speaking of which, I mean, you're still trying to find out about your father. And I yeah. think there was a question of whether he was even from Zambia. That's still in question. Yeah. Or... Yeah. We're kind of getting somewhere now with, with, with my dad. So it does look like that he, he was Zambian. So thank the Lord, I don't have to say, well, now I'm some, some other nationality as well. <laughs> because again, I held on to the Zambian identity with my Irish identity for years. So to for somebody to turn around then and say, oh, well, you know what? You're not from there. It's from here. Now, it mightn't seem like a big thing, but when all you don't have your full identity growing up, you know, so you hold on to that. And obviously the wonderful Samantha Mumba is uh, half Zambian as well. So that was always something like, oh, Samantha's half Zambian. So <laughs> loves that about that as well. So, um, and Zambia is such an amazing country. Like I'm dying to kind of get the information. I held off going because I kept saying to myself over the years, you know, when you find your family, you'll go. So I think I, I held myself back and maybe unconsciously, but now I'm kind of, whether I find out or, I, you know, I don't, I'm going to go anyway. So okay. definitely right. by next year. And Marguerite, do you know about the circumstances of your mum and dad and all of that story of what happened? I only know it's made like, you know, that seemingly dad came over from um, Zambia. Um, he was in the medical corps in the army. And so they came to the Curra. So a number of cadets came, I think it was from 1967, 68, over to Ireland. And my dad was one of them. So they seemed to have met at a dance and had a, I think from, you know, snippets of information going back years, 
that they did have a good but long relationship but obviously he was only here for a short amount of time dad went back in 73 september 73 now this is from my tools to the file i've gotten this information from doing this tracing and i was born in january um 74 so he did know about me um again did hear something throughout the years that he did try to see if he could take me to Zambia. But at that stage, that was completely unheard of. A father coming to take their daughter, plus, you know, a black man from another country. So again, I've no proof of that. That's just something we were told down the line. But I really hope, I, you know, it's the final straw to find out that part of information, you know. So again, it's something that, you know, I don't want to give up on. I've I've come this far. Um, and if it's, you know, not great news, that's okay. I have to deal with that. But I'll have the answers. It's all about yeah. the answers and some identity to finish it off, you know, for me. And listen, just before you go, how are you now? How's your health? How's your work? What sort of, your life has kind of changed a lot in the last couple of yeah. years. So, so where it are you has. at now and what's, what's next for you? Um, you know, I had that really bad illness and life was really horrible for a while for myself and my parents. Again, I got through it, you know, strength and determination, stubbornness. Um, I, you know, life is really good. Um, I'm so happy. Um, obviously, you know, meeting up with my brothers and sister-in-laws and nieces and nephew and things like that have really given me the extra boost. The book has really, you know, changed me again because even my friends have said, I didn't know a quarter of the things that happened to you. I'm so glad I know now. Um, you know, so for them, you know, I was very worried about the book. So many people, like, they've laughed, they've cried, you know, through the book. But the sadness, I think, came out for them. But I'm okay with the sadness because I've dealt with it. So I was kind of feeling for them, you know, I was like, oh, God, they're going to read this. Especially my brothers, because there is a, a chapter about my mum. And that really hurt me to think, God, I hope they're going to be okay with this. But they have been 100% supportive. So, um, yeah, I'm just actually starting a new position in work now in two weeks, just to add to the madness. Um, what are you doing? So I work for VHI and um, private health care. So I'm just changing now position. I'm going to do kind of corporate screening. So coordinator for that. So going into companies with the nurse and we'll be doing the screening and things. So on the road, meeting people, which I love, you know. Um, so it's a new challenge. My mum and dad are like, thought you're supposed to be slowing down now after the book and having a break. Because I'm sure you know, Roisin, it's a bit crazy, isn't it, this? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm like checking my diary every day going, oh, what am I to do today? You know, and, um, you know, speaking to everybody, like to be given these platforms is so amazing. You know, I never thought, I thought, ah, oh, the book will come out, you know, to be read and that'll be it. But so many people are so interested. So it, that to me is the biggest reward that I'm actually, you know, reaching people. I'm, people are resonating with it. People are interested, you know. People have said to me, oh my God, my friend told me about your book. I'm going out. They're messaging me like people I've never met before. So that's really made me think that uh, that was, um, you know, I'm very, I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason. So I don't know where I'm going now, wherever the wind takes me, will I say. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, listen, it's been really great talking to you and the best of luck with everything. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk to you again at some point. And the book is brilliant and it's called yeah but where are you really from which is such a great title <laughs> well done marguerite penrose thanks roisin that's all we have time for thanks so much to marguerite penrose for talking to me and that book again is called yeah but where are you really from the podcast is produced by me roisin ingle by jennifer ryan and suzanne brennan with jj vernon on sound get in touch with us on email the women's podcast at irishtimes.com or on social at it women's podcasts Mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time.